Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Valence Advisory and Mattermade. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hello, everybody. This is Arjun Dave Arora, the founder and managing partner of Valence Advisory. We support funds and founders and help accelerate their efforts via people, strategy, and capital. And now I'll pass it off to Eli from Mattermade. Howdy, everybody. Uh, Elias here from Mattermade. I'm the founding partner. We're a roving B2B marketing org that jump in and help out Series A B2B tech companies. Back to you, Arjun. Great. And today we are very, very excited to have Sandeep Sood uh, on with us and uh, I'll let him introduce himself. So thanks, Sandeep, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Eli and Arjun. I am Sandeep Kumar Sood. I'm currently the CEO of a product development company called Kunai. Um, actually became CEO of it uh, two months ago, uh, a bit of a COVID story that I can share later on. Um, but I have been in the world of entrepreneurship for about 20 years, have started a number of companies. Most of them have been consulting companies, actually did consulting as a way to start other businesses and sort of never left the industry and have found a home here. And so that's my main focus and uh, also had a background in a little bit of entertainment, ran a comic strip for quite a while. And we can talk a bit about that too. Great. Thanks. And yeah, I know you've, you've had a phenomenal career addressing all kinds of different topics and areas. Would love to maybe start by sharing a little bit about Monsoon Co and, and maybe talk through your journey with that and then the work with Jungly and, and maybe in Monsoon Co would love to hear a bit about outsourcing and offshoring. I know you were really a pioneer in that work. And so would love to hear a bit more of your story on how you you know made that work for so many, uh, so many companies. Sure. Um, the first time I hired an Indian team to get a project done was in 1999. And so this was really when outsourcing, or at least outsourcing of software was beginning uh, because we had this little thing going on at the time called Y2K. So for the first time, I mean, there was some happening before that, but en masse, the first time American companies really began realizing the level of technical expertise uh, in India and other countries was because of Y2K. Um, and you had these armies of... Uh, Indian engineers combing through code, looking for the right date format. Um, and of course, that emergency never materialized, but all of the communication networks, a lot of the biggest piping was laid down during that time across the ocean uh, to make that possible. And so we were struggling back in the days of Skype to do collaboration, struggling to share 1.2 megabyte files sometimes. And now um, I am really tickled by the fact that suddenly remote work has overnight become a ubiquitous thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And maybe tell us a little bit about the monsoon story. I know it was a, a phenomenal journey. Um, yeah, you know, it, was, yeah. Uh, it was really cool. I think uh, my first few years running it is when I met you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and probably the, to me, one of the most unique things about monsoon is it was started by four childhood college uh, friends. And that has never changed. Since then, we've started four more companies together, all with the same four partners. Um, and that group has stayed really tight. So the adage of, of never work with your friends, uh, we've broken with every single thing we've ever done. Um, and it's worked out really nicely for us. 
but Monsoon started with myself uh, doing some basic outsourcing, as I talked about. Uh, we then grew it to uh, 50 employees in Oakland and then sold the most of the company to Capital One in 2015. Um, really unique situation because Capital One was interested in our engineering talent, a bit of our IP, specifically IP we had built for them. But what they allowed us to do is they allowed us to uh, keep our clients, keep a couple of people on. And so we essentially started another consulting company with a new CEO. I went into Capital One for three years and worked there, got a good handle on the financial industry. Um, and while that was happening, this other consulting company, Kunai, um, has grown and is now this uh, mainly fintech-focused consultancy uh, that I'm now back at the helm of again. So did the did the fintech angle come out of Capital One? Was that something you were already interested in? Yeah, even before they bought the company. So we randomly, completely randomly ended up with clients like Bloomberg, Capital One, and really were astounded by how far back or how far behind the financial industry was. Um, in some cases, even compared to industries that you consider backwards like healthcare. And so this for a consulting company, particularly when you're selling labor, is a really attractive space to be in because there's just so much to be done. There's no department that isn't five years behind. Um, and so you can really get in and accomplish a lot. And around the time that Monsoon got bought in 2015, uh, was when Plaid was starting to come up, when a lot of the integrators were really starting to become successful. And just watching that tremendous change, watching fintech go from a buzzword most people haven't even heard of to suddenly the first trend everyone mentions uh, has been really fascinating. Could you share, I mean, uh, whenever acquisitions are talked about, it's sometimes people have to be kind of secretive just due to legal issues. But I'm curious if you can share some of the details of that story. And perhaps, you know, I think a lot of people assume when they read about an acquisition that they're all cut and dry. And a lot of times they aren't. Are there any elements you could share with us about that that, that might be surprising to folks? That's a really good question. I would say, generally speaking, um, the acquisition for us, because a lot of times, and I imagine one place the question is coming from is you hear a ton of horror stories about acquisitions where uh, to the point where some friends after we got bought were like, should I congratulate you? Is this a good thing? I don't know. Um, and I totally get that. Uh, in our case with Capital One, uh, they were tremendously generous, not just in the terms of the deal, but also in making sure we were comfortable with every uh, non-financial term of the situation as well. So for example, it's not normal to for a company to buy your company. And then after listening to you, we were like, look, all you guys want is our talent. We know, we understand that this is a talent acquisition, but would you allow us to continue with our clients if we all just promise we're not going to touch the company for three or four years? And their amenability to that just shocked us. We couldn't believe they were... Uh, willing to listen and really accommodate that request. Um, so uh, fortunately for me and unfortunately for the question, I have nothing but uh, <laughs> but good things to report from that acquisition. Nice. Yeah. And and while, when you were there, I know you had worked on a lot of really interesting projects inside of Capital One and mm -hmm. including everything from kind of building new things to exploring other startups and continuing the conversations. Is there uh, something you can share about what your experience was like as into the you know, transition as part of the integration and, and the work you did there. Yeah, this is probably where, as I promised, I'm going to turn it around on you a little bit too, Arjun, because I think 
in a lot of ways, that phase of our careers was very similar because I went into a big company for the first time since I was 21. Um, and before that, I think entrepreneurship's amazing, but you're always paranoid. You're always trying to break that next deal for yourself. Uh, you're always worried and you're kind of always in hustle mode. And those three years at Capital One uh, was one of the first times in my career I had the luxury to help other people before myself. Um, it's one of the first times I got to kind of look over like a whole industry or a whole market, get to know specific entrepreneurs, understand all that. And I think if I asked you the question, you would agree like the last, that experience for me was pivotal and that it turned me more into a mentor as a leader than it did as a, a hustler entrepreneur. And I'd love to get your take on that too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, it's always fun to have it flipped around. So, um, no, I feel fortunate in that I've I've been able to at different phases of my career been able to kind of zoom way out and really look uh, at things from an ecosystem level and and just dig in to be helpful, whether it's funds or or founders. And there's a uniqueness of that uh, perch, which I'm deeply grateful for, uh, that really allows you to have. Uh, the impact because you can see things from that vantage point and, you know, because you have the ability, capacity and experience to, uh, you know, to lend a helping hand. So, yeah, I'm, again, very grateful for for being able to be in that position. Cool. So is there a certain thesis that you have right now with Kunai and, and kind of the way that you look at, obviously there's tremendous opportunity out there and there's these deep yeah. backlogs. What lens are you viewing this through? So I've always... Uh, until this moment, I've been really insecure as an honor entrepreneur because I'm in consulting and not a product business, right? And every six months from the beginning of running a consulting company to now, like even this week, <laughs> we're looking at products. Like what product could we start? Should we package what we're doing? And the thesis that's emerging is that in financial in, in the financial industry, uh, there's a lot of other places like this too, like healthcare. This to me is a moment for the industry when consulting and labor is equally, if not important, if not more important than SaaS companies in the space. And the reason why is you have these archaic systems. A lot of them are automated to an extent, but you have these core banking systems that have been in place for decades. And you need to extract terabytes and terabytes of data from these systems. And what all of the SaaS companies doing are doing is developing another API, another API. And of course, they're extremely successful, but there's also a niche for people who are willing to roll their sleeves up to help these banks implement 15 APIs instead of one, to build layers around them, to build wrappers around them, and to really take a lot of the amazing work that's happening in SaaS and actually help banks use it. Because most of them don't even have the capabilities in-house to take advantage of these products because their data stores, their core systems are so out of date that they can't even get the data out of them in a reliable way. So I'm curious because, you know, when you, when you think about a traditional consulting business and growth, right, these are you're, you're working much larger, much longer deals. So how do you, I mean, when you think about the next three, five years for Kunai, how do you model out growth and, and approach that in the industry? Yeah. So um, one of the first ways we did that is by actually picking an industry. So for years before this, uh, I would get on the phone with people and they'd be like, so what do you do? 
And I'm like, well, if it's digital, I do it. And so that already confused them. And then say, well, what kind of clients do you have? And I'm like, well, if they use computers, they're my clients. And so it was, just, <laughs> it was no focus whatsoever. And so the last five years, I've really enjoyed getting into one industry. And my outlook for the next five years, we have a very specific thesis. And that's that our clients are generally speaking, we have some unicorn startups as, as clients and stuff as well. Shout out to them. I don't want to say that I don't want them as clients. But we really want to help the tier one and tier two banks, tier one and tier two insurance companies. Uh, we really want to help them get on, if not equal, at least comparable footing to the fintech startups technology-wise. There's a lot of community banks uh, that have much better context about their geographic region. Uh, there are credit unions and banks that serve specific industries, and their context is a huge competitive advantage. It's just that their technology is so far behind that it's going to take a gargantuan effort for them to start leapfrogging and getting to the point where they can compete. And we really think we fit a niche there. We feel like we are one of the few companies that speaks their language and understands the fintech ecosystem. And so we can bridge that divide and help them out. And as part of bridging that divide, often these things are not solely technology you know, challenges. There's a very deeply human uh, kind of change management and leadership challenge there. Um, would love to hear about some of your lessons learned as you've helped some of these you know, larger uh, organizations that have been around for you know, tens of years, in some cases, hundreds of years, shift into uh, some of this new technology. What, what are some of the things that have worked and, and what maybe has been challenging? Uh, so I think uh, one of the things that age brings you is a lot less brashness, a lot less ego when you're talking about technology. Um, uh, it brings a lot more respect for what a lot of these financial institutions have accomplished and what they continue to accomplish. And that sort of young guy's attitude of, okay, dinosaur, let me teach you how to dance now is just not, it's not, a, it's not as much there anymore. Um, so I think the biggest Biggest lesson, and I needed this more than most people, I think, is the humility to respect uh, what executives are capable of within their niches while still being cognizant of the advantage that we bring being so steeped in technology. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of lessons that I've learned through the years, some of them from you, um, on how to, to deal with these things better. Uh, but right now, I think the last two years have really been marked by uh, getting a better sense of humility for what the context is, what the limitations of a context are, and how to still maneuver efficiently within that context uh, without just complaining and yelling and screaming because things aren't moving exactly the way you want. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a unique time in history as, as some of that leapfrogging is happening. And I think helping folks manage through it is, uh, is non-trivial and, and quite challenging work. Maybe just to switch gears a little bit on the product side, just as you have built so many incredible products, both for your own purposes and, and on behalf of some of your other clients, maybe if you can share some of your stories on products you built, whether it's, you know, the jungly, you know, products or some of the other ones you've done and, and kind of what's worked well and what have you learned from, from those experiences? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things I continue to want to do this, but one of the, the rare moments in a consulting company's company, a com consulting company's history is when you can spin out a product successfully. It's, it, for some reason, it's just impossible. Very yeah. few consulting companies ever do it. 
Mm-hmm. We all talk about it. We all have a labs division and we all try to make something happen inside of that. And we uh, have failed at it many, many, many times. But there are some really fun exceptions. Um, so uh, over a decade ago, uh, one of our business partners, one of the four core partners and a good friend of both of ours was taking an idea that had uh, an idea for an industry that we had learned about from a client and was playing around with this idea of online gaming in India. And keep in mind, this is over a decade ago. Internet penetration is exponentially lower in India than what it is today. Uh, Internet infrastructure is terrible. Broadband is low. And so we were at least five years too early in a market uh, where core e-commerce wasn't in place yet. We were already looking at gaming and and, uh, fantasy and all this kind of stuff out in India. And most of us inside the company were highly opposed to it. It was really complex. Uh, Massive multiplayer games are really difficult to pull off in the U.S., um, much harder to pull off when there isn't good bandwidth. Uh, but he stuck with the idea. All of us supported him. And we now turned it into the second largest online gaming company in India. And it's just uh, it, continuing to grow and only exponentially growing faster because of COVID and because of quarantine and all of that. And that, to me, was the first time I realized that product development actually is possible at a consulting company. You just need to have enough people who are abstracted from the day-to-day to really do those cycles over and over again to deal with the inevitable ups and downs and uh, build something really useful. Awesome. What signals have you looked for in the past? You know, as, as you said, you've been through many of these cycles and tried to spin things up and then I decided to shut them down. What signals were you looking for when you got to the point you decided, hey, you know what, let's move on to the next thing. Let's try the next thing. The, the funniest thing about that is that the, the times we've succeeded the most is when we didn't even bother to look for signals at all. So the story I just told you with the card game, if you ran a market analysis on online gaming in India in 2004, you'd be like, that's okay. So that, that's the dumbest idea I heard this year. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, something like social networking that actually makes sense. And so I say that a little tongue in cheek. But with that said, we've become more diligent about researching markets now. So I'll give you an example from the last two months. So a few months ago, COVID hit and uh, I went from being a board member to CEO of Kunai because of COVID. Our our, uh, former CEO had some family issues that came up directly as a result um, and needed the time away. And we also lost a, a large number of clients. Either they downsized, some canceled, one or two went under. And so we suddenly had a bench full of uh, really strong developers with no clients. And we decided rather than laying people off, we would just ask the entire company to take a short-term pay cut, which we've now gladly gotten past. And during that time, there was just time to work on whatever anyone wanted to work on. And we were open to ideas. And so two of our developers began working on an open-sourced uh, Bluetooth low energy way to enforce social distancing between people. Um, so it's really simple. It's whether the app is active or not, whether it's Android or iPhone, if two people have it installed, an alarm will go off if they're within six feet of each other. Now, it won't work at a mass scale because we're not going to get millions and millions of users. But if someone at a factory wants to implement it and tell everyone to download the app, it suddenly works really, really well. 
And so we supported the idea. It wasn't our vision. But to answer your question, it was obviously there was not much research needed to be done to know if product market fit was there, if we could do it. And they kept going with it. We began supporting them, putting some dollars and marketing strategy behind them. And as of last week, the United Nations is going to integrate our code base into their official app. Wow. So not a huge business <laughs> success because we're not getting paid by the United Nations, but it's really cool to see them use the software and, uh, and take it further. Amazing. Wow. Just in the last couple of minutes that we've got left, would love to hear, you know, your perspectives on, particularly since you're kind of knee deep in uh, fintech these days, mm -hmm. uh, around where you think you know some of the more interesting trends are in that space specifically, or you know, or and uh, anything around kind of product and development. But uh, maybe we'd love to start with fintech. Thank yeah, you. there are two. There are two areas I'm most interested in. One is extremely cutting edge. The other one is actually not cutting edge, but much more necessary. So we've talked about the first one. Um, I want to bring uh, banks and other financial institutions to the present. Um, and specifically what that means to me is opening up their tremendous uh, stores of data for other fintechs to use, for them to use in ways that they want. Um, and by doing that, you're sort of doing basic things to bring them up to par. But what you're doing at a deeper level is you're suddenly enabling an exponential number of startups to come up with ideas that leverage this data. You're enabling internal innovation there. So the first one to me is really uh, the whole world of API integrations for banks. Uh, and that means the back end of their data all the way up to the fintechs that leverage it. Uh, the second place I'm uh, becoming more and more obsessed with is just payments in general. So this means credit card innovation, everything from new solutions for short-term credit at the point of sale. So there's one model we have for the point of sale in terms of extending credit now, which is you give a credit card, you pay whatever rate that credit card charges you. Uh, but there are hundreds of other ways to do that in ways for different levels of purchases, uh, different frequency of purchases that would make credit a lot more manageable for people. And the credit card companies are very interested because the more ways they can off offer credit, the more types of cards and products they can offer. So working with them on that. Um, and then, as you know, I'm also uh, very interested in everything involving payments all the way through to cryptocurrency. And I don't really look at them as a separate stack anymore. I think elements of crypto are going to enter into everyone's model. Um, and I actually think uh, most people don't know the history of the credit card, but the very idea of the credit card, the very idea of Visa was a decentralized payment rail to enable global commerce. Um, and a lot of the times when you listen to the founders of credit cards talk, if you, if you hide the site or the book, it sounds like a Bitcoin pioneer talking about the future of payments. So I just think there's a continuity there and there's a lot of interesting things coming down the pipe with payments in general. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sandeep. We really, really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for sharing so many awesome insights today. So uh, thank you again. Awesome. Thanks for thanks having me and great to meet you, Eli. Likewise. Likewise.